claw right now. I should be stroking a cat. What's it, what is the the Blofeld? Blofeld from James Bond? Yeah, Blofeld is yeah. the James Bond character, yeah. Yeah, but Dr. Claw is a better reference anyway. Fucking Dr. Claw. <laughs> it's a marginally more timely reference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, marginally. Blofeld was in the last Bond movie. I know you guys don't watch That's the true. Bond movies. No, I did. Like, I've seen it everyone. just had Christoph Waltz. Oh, okay, there yeah. you go. Uh, he wasn't. He wasn't stroking a cat, though. No, unfortunately, they did not do that scene. I was like, I was kind of hoping they would go super arch with it because they went yeah. super arch with everything else in that movie. So I was like, why didn't she just do him stroking the cat? Because like they did everything else. But just so you guys that. know, there is currently an Inspector Gadget series running on Netflix. It's a CGI cartoon. I think I don't is know where really? it's based. There is. It is. I show it to my kids sometimes because I was like, this is nostalgic for me and maybe they'll like it. And they they dig it because there's a lot of slapstick yeah. in it. So yeah. I tried to show them Teen Titans Go, but there's too many pop culture references oh, yeah. in that. And yeah. yeah, so I Inspector Gadget's a little bit more in their <laughs> wheelhouse. Who's the voice on the Inspector Gadget show? Because I don't know. Like, the original guy, I'm sure he's dead by now because he did that Get Smart show in the 60s, right? Like that. Was that the same guy? I didn't know that was the same guy. That makes sense, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should know that guy's name, man. I used to love yeah. both those shows. Like, I grew up watching uh, Inspector Gadget and Get Smart. Get Smart used to, like... Because Get Smart used to be the lead-in to the 66 Batman show on YTV yeah. back in the day. And I used to watch both of them, like, religiously. It is not the same guy. Is it not? I thought it was the same guy. Well, no, it, it was the same guy. It was Don Adams vo- was was Get Smart and also voiced okay, yeah, Inspector yeah. Gadget in the original 80s series. Uh, but it is... Right, okay. Yeah, but he is not... Yeah. He's yeah. dead. So the new guy is apparently yeah, yeah. Ivan yeah. Sherry. Ivan Sherry. Because it was Steve Carell in the movie when they did the movie with The Rock a couple of years back. And that had Anne Hathaway in it too. Good movie, actually. So oh. like underrated movie. Oh, and Tara Strong does the voice for Penny in that because she's yeah. done voice acting because for fucking she, everything. She was just in that. Uh, I watched uh, that Justice League versus the Fatal Five thing this week. Yeah. She was in that again, too. So yeah, she's all over the place. She's Batgirl. She's done Harley yeah. Quinn. She's done yeah. like everything. I think she yeah. was Harley Quinn and somebody else in this one. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. She's Raven and Teen Titans go too. That's right. Yeah. All yeah, right. She's been every, yeah. Well, let's call that preamble then. Yeah. Welcome back everybody to uh, the 141st episode of Dance Robot Dance. Uh, we have our usual crew with us tonight, but we're going to have a special guest a little later in the episode, which you probably already know if you've read the episode description. But I'm going to play that we're keeping it in suspense just for fun. For Christy's listening sake. So like- <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm Tim. I'm going to be hosting this evening. And with me from South Korea, we have Paul. Hello. And we have Mark from Milton, Ontario. This doesn't sound as exciting as Korea. Like, I don't... <laughs> <laughs> Because it's, it's not. not. It's, it's just, boring. Yeah. It is. It is real boring. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm real bored, guys. How's it going, everybody? <sighs> yeah, it's been been a long week, busy week. How, how are you guys doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in, in unison. Yeah. <laughs> well, All right. Oh man. Can you tell we're brothers? Like, like we answer exactly the same way and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Are you yeah, doing exactly. eh? Eh. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, moving on to something else that I think a lot of people are uh, about. Let's move on to the news. The first thing I wanted to talk about <laughs> was pretty interesting trailer that we got this week for the Joker movie, the Todd Phillips Joker movie starring Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, I don't know. What do you guys think? I don't know. I'm still like I, I when I first saw it, I, I messaged you guys and I was like, I don't know if I want this. And I'm probably gonna watch it, but it looks it looks weirdly Oscar baity to me. And like, it's very reminiscent of 
like I don't know the, the colors and stuff made me think of Dark Knight like Nolan esque. Mm-hmm. So there's I don't kind know desaturated it's, like that. And, yeah. yeah, it definitely felt like somebody on the production staff was like, I should have got Heath Ledger in a solo Joker movie that would have made me a billion dollars and won him an Oscar and me an Oscar probably. Like there's a producer at Warner Brothers thinking this, and he's like, I'm gonna try again. <laughs> like I can yeah. I, maybe I can do it with Joaquin Phoenix like I feel like that's what this movie is is like somebody's like we got this fucking close and then we won an Oscar with that with this character let's win a best picture or something dumb like somebody's got some weird idea in their head of what they're yeah. doing I'm still curious like it looks interesting yeah it's just the conceit of like a Joker origin story never really appeals to me because I like the mystery of it yeah. like the, I was saying like you know how I got these scars thing from yeah and his changes uh, every time and his yeah his origin yeah. is kind of nebulous he's just a force of nature and yeah. and he just fucks with everybody like it's part of like everything's part of the punchline you know i like that aspect of the joker so much that like having a i don't know a dark sad origin story for the joker just seems a little bit weird but it's i I don't want to sympathize with them either. Like, yeah, that's know. that's gonna be the weird part if they make him sort of an anti-hero kind of character. Yeah, like, but especially like maybe it's more because like we're on the creative side too a little bit, Paul. But, like, like I I don't see him as a character that I'm like, oh yeah, I want to sympathize with that guy. Like, I want him to be that evil monster yeah. nature yeah. guy. Yeah, because that that's a tool you can use as a writer, right? So I don't know. I think yeah. It depends on where you're coming at it from, but like I don't need this movie at all. But yeah, if it, I am mean, gonna get it. It had better be fucking good. So yeah, yeah. Like if you're gonna do this to me, like let's like do it right, boys. So. I'm kind of in the same boat. Like once I get past the like, do I want this movie or not, which I'm still not sure about. It at yeah. least gave me like the mindset that I would want to be in for a Joker movie. Like when I was watching it, I was like, this sort of puts me at unease and makes me feel a little strange and unsettled and that's what I would want in a Joker movie. If I do end up wanting a Joker movie kind of thing. Yeah. So I was like, I would go more Lynch with it if I could, but like, just go real weird. Cause like, why not? Mm-hmm. If that's the character and you want to do something artsy. Yeah. You don't know. Maybe, maybe the weird. movie itself is real weird. And this is just like, could be. Th- this is just like the sanest bits that they can show us in the trailer. <laughs> yeah. yeah so. if, if this turns out yeah. to be something like, Ooh, you, you walk in and it turns out to be some weird Suspiria esque mind fuck. I'd be like, all right, I'm in. Yeah. This is cool. I mean, like <laughs> everybody else will hate it, but like, I'd be, I don't know. I sat through that Grant Morrison Arkham Asylum comic like 15 times. Now, so I'd be kind of <laughs> interested in that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we'll definitely be talking about more about that as it gets close to the date of, I think, October. This year, right? Yeah, it's October, I think, like, 4th, October 4th, I think, yeah. this year. Cool. The DC Universe streaming service got a big upgrade this past week where DC announced, and uh, we talked about this a little bit before, that they're going to put their entire digital comic book library on there permanently. So far, they've just been yeah. sort of, like, rotating out titles and have been pretty heavily curated, but now it's going to be, like, 20,000-plus comics that you can access on there. It sounds like probably pretty much everything they've got on like Comixology and the other digital platforms. So release it in Canada (laughs) and uh, you have a subscriber. I will subscribe. (laughs) So maybe they just need to get on that, Uh, especially if it runs better than Marvel unlimited. Cause yeah, that thing kind of sucks sometimes still. So I think I might just need to upgrade my iPad too, but yeah. Yeah, I would probably like if I had access to it, I would probably subscribe to something like this because like, the act of finding comics in like internationally mm-hmm. 
is really difficult. If you can get imports of comics, but the only English translated ones here in Korea tend to be manga. So I can get like Attack on Titan in English or Bleach mm-hmm. or something like that or something that's still still running. But uh, all the Marvel and DC comics ship translated. Oh. So I can't yeah, get That's a- right they would when they Yeah. So I can't really get it like I actually own I inherited some uh, graphic novels, an Iron Man collection, Invincible Iron Man, that is completely in Korean. So I don't, I can't read it, but it's, I have it, so it's fine. I just kind of want to see how that looks now, because like that means is everything translated? Like yeah, everything. Well, except for the the title, like Mar, like everything, all the title and stuff, and the author is in English, but the all the interior dialogue and stuff is in Korean. So yeah, do they redo the sound effects? No. Okay. That's, that's what I was curious about. Yeah, no, I don't... Well, hang on, let me check. <laughs> Be right back. We don't have time for this, Paul. <laughs> we are on a schedule tonight. Yeah, we gotta keep moving. They do not redo the sound effects. <laughs> it's been a while since I've looked at this thing, but they all the sound effects are in English. Okay. All right. All the onomatopoeia. Well, moving on to other Asian media. Paul, this is one I know virtually nothing about, but since you shared it on the Facebook page, I figured we'd talk about it. Netflix's live action adaptation of the classic anime series Cowboy Bebop that I've never seen announced that it will be starring John Cho as well as Mustafa Shakir, who played Bushmaster in Luke Cage season two, and then one of the actresses from Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, Daniela Pineda. Yeah, this is really excellent news because they're, they've been kicking around a uh, Cowboy Bebop live action concept for a really long time. And for a long time, the main character was slated to be Keanu Reeves Ooh. as Spike Spiegel, which is a bad mix. Like, Spike Spiegel is, like, really cool, but, like, a very high-energy character for the most part. Like, he's chill, but he get like, I don't know, Keanu Reeves was not a fit at all and he's based Spike Spiegel is based on an old Japanese uh TV character like a cop drama character so like having him be played by an Asian actor is more mm-hmm. appropriate John Cho I believe is Korean but he John Cho is such a charismatic actor and I want I just like to see him in more stuff so this is really really good news and I'm very happy about it. Some people are like he's too old or and one guy on the page I follow was like I wanted Matthew McConaughey for Jesus. this role. And I was like what the fuck? Jesus. So but Cowboy Bebop is a classic series and it deserves a good live action treatment. Again, not that I really particularly want this series, but if I'm going to have it, they better do a damn good job because this is like a beloved anime series. It's been around for like 20 odd years and it's still still a gateway anime for a lot of people because it's so stylish and very accessible, but still just weird enough to like turn you on to other stuff. So yay, John Cho. I'm really excited about this. Okay. We'll see. We'll see if I'll actually be enthralled by it or not. But in news related to other beloved and uh, much praised anime, the live action Akira movie is moving forward, (laughs) produced part by Leonardo DiCaprio. It is apparently set to enter production in California later this year. And there are rumors that Taika Waititi is in talks to direct this thing. This sounds so weird. Like, Akira, I have seen, although it was like 20 years ago. And I remember it being cool. I remember like virtually nothing else about it. But yeah, 
Akira is a very quintessentially Japanese story uh, in a particular time in a particular place about particular anxieties within Japan at the time. And it's really weird to be adapting this for an American audience. First of all, there has been like ever since it was announced, like there's there's a parody. If you guys look up Akira USA on YouTube, there's the most hilarious parody of it where it's like they're it's a multi-ethnic gang and they're like trying to sit solve the problem before the prom tomorrow and stuff like that it's just i, I again i don't want this this was <laughs> like i like i love akira i've watched it many times it's like it does it it's not really a particularly a movie that holds up well but it's beautiful like it's a gorgeous film and I don't know what they're going to do with it for live action. I'm really curious what the casting will be. Uh, I know that they are not going to be setting it in Neo Tokyo like it originally was. It's just, oh, it's one of those adaptations, again, where it's kind of like, why? Yeah. But yeah, so I, but if it's Taika, I have great faith in him. I believe that he could do a good job. I just don't think that this, like, should ever get, it shouldn't have even been considered. <laughs> But it's fine. Whatever. All right. I, I submit to the Hollywood machine. It's <laughs> well, in uh, in news regarding Japanese media, media, I'm a little more excited and invested in. Sega this week announced that they are releasing a Genesis Mini, sort of on the heels of Nintendo releasing their NES and SNES Minis. So it'll be like a little system that has some games preloaded, but that uh, also you can put your old Genesis cartridges in, which is good for me because that was the system I had as a kid. So that's I've still got all my old Genesis cartridges kicking around. So, I mean, the, the movies or the games they're putting on it are a weird mix. I mean, they're putting Sonic on it, obviously, because they fucking have to. Altered Beast, which is yeah. like classic Sega game. Castlevania Bloodlines. Echo the Dolphin. Oh. And then we get in the weird shit. Comics Zone. Do you remember that game? Oh, I yeah. love Comics Zone. That was <laughs> yeah. Dr. Good Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine. That's a good that game, a actually. Surprisingly good Gunstar game. Heroes. <laughs> Great game, Gunstar actually. <laughs> Shining Force. Oh, oh I, I'm into uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Space Harrier 2. Classic on the arcade. Yeah, and uh, Toe Jam and Earl are the games that will come preloaded onto the Genesis Mini. So, yeah. last year, you can buy this awesome collection on every major console now. It's like the Genesis collection. It's got like 50 games in it. It has yeah. all these games. All of them. Yeah. And all their sequels. And I don't see any Streets of Rage on here. And like, like I don't know why you would want this collect this thing. When you can go buy the collection for literally twenty dollars on a PlayStation, if you are if you're already there, but you can buy it for Steam too, I think. Yeah, I guess yeah. like just just for the nostalgia of playing on those old original cartridges yeah. rather than playing it on like a port or something like that. But yeah. I did notice that the uh, the North American version gets a three button controller as opposed to a six button, and I wonder if that made any oh, kind of difference to the uh, the, the game selection because I don't I, I see like you would think Mortal Kombat. Like the original Mortal Kombat would be in there just mm-hmm. because it's Mortal Kombat. And like that was kind of the that was their one big fuck you to, the, to Nintendo at the time, especially was like them having the good version of Mortal Kombat. So, yeah. The one with red blood. Yeah, with yeah. real blood and actual <laughs> fatalities. But like, yeah, it, it's just it, it just strikes me as odd that they're getting like the, they're doing the three button yeah. controller yeah. and stuff. So hmm. It's a collector's item. I think mm-hmm. that that's like mostly the the appeal for it. Yeah, this might be one I might actually pick up. Like, I do have still have my old Genesis, but I've just never got around to like figuring out how to hook it up to my home theater system. Where something like this that'll presumably have like an HDMI out or something HDMI, like that yeah. will uh, will be a lot easier to get hooked up to my modern 
home theater system. I sure hope it has HDMI. I don't know how else you would hook up anything <laughs> to a modern TV anymore. Yeah. Like, is there another connector you can use now? <laughs> like, yeah. We're probably like two generations away from USB-C, but like, <laughs> my TV doesn't have a USB-C port on it. So Yeah. Let's see. I got a series of bits of interesting horror news, which we probably wouldn't be talking about if anybody else was hosting, but I'm a horror nerd, so we're talking about them. Pet Cemetery came out uh, over the weekend and not getting great reviews, getting mixed reviews, I'll say. I've seen some that are decent, some that are not so good. See, that works out real well for me because it means it'll get dumped to streaming real fast and I'll be able to see it. Yeah. Um, as opposed to going to the theater. Because I do want to see it still. Like, I don't care. No matter how bad a horror movie reviews, if I want to see it, I'll watch it. Yeah. Because mm. horror is real subjective. And That's like, true. And we've had this discussion before where, like, a lot of horror movies that are enjoyed and lauded by horror fans don't get good reviews from mainstream yeah. critics because they don't really get, like, why horror fans like the movies they do. So, mm-hmm. yeah. We'll see. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I mean, especially with everything else coming out right now, this is one I'm not going to go see in theaters. No, I was like, if I was bored and I've been very bored, I was thinking about going to see it, but I probably should go see us before I see that. Yeah, you should. Yes, you should. And then Hellboy, Hellboy comes out next week where I thought it was this week. So I was getting real panicky. So I was like, oh shit, there's a lot of stuff just like dropping now. So yeah, I saw us last weekend and I think we could get an episode about that for sure. Yeah, I'll go watch it. Uh, Have you seen it, Paul? I saw it yesterday. It was okay. really good. Yeah. I'll go see it this weekend or like this week sometime. And then we can figure out when we want to do it. Like we're going to have, we got episodes lined up for the next like month, I think with reviews and shit. So yeah, I'll say I called the twist pretty early, but it was still pretty effective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was very well executed. Yeah, 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 for sure. Well, I'll go see it this week and then we can figure out if we want to do an episode about it or yeah. like when we want to do an episode about yeah, it. Yeah. When we can we squeeze have, one in. <laughs> we have 5,000 comic book movies that we should probably review coming up in the next little while. This so. is true. Yep. Let's see. Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone series is coming out soon. And the first episode of it, you can watch for free on YouTube right now. So I guess just trying to drum up some hype for it. So I watched it. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty good. I'm I'm pretty excited. Yeah. yeah, it held up pretty well. So I'm kind of like I'm I'm on board for I'm gonna watch all of it, I think. Um I might do it yeah. more like I do Black Mirror. Like I kinda I'm weird with Black Mirror. Like I can only watch like an episode at a time. Otherwise my brain goes into like gloom mode and I'm like I can't take yeah. it for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I had to do like an episode every couple of days or like an episode a day or something like that. So I'll probably do the same yeah. thing for this because it, it had that kind of tone to it. Not as yeah. like dour as Black Mirror, That's but Black Mirror. If they're going to do Twilight Zone in 2019, I assume they're going to like start veering in a much yeah. more uh, grim way than the 60s show did, which I've watched lots of. But yeah, so I'm excited. Yeah, uh, I'll probably I mean, it's fucking free. Yeah, I'll go find yeah. it and uh, check it out because I've been pretty excited for this series, too. Yeah. See, there was an, another trailer this week for a sort of horror comedy movie for Jim Jarmusch's The Dead Don't Die. It's his zombie movie with a fucking crazy cast. Bill Murray, Adam Driver, Steve Buscemi, Iggy Pop, Carol Kane. Holy shit. Fuck, who else? There's, and that It goes on and on. Tilda Swinton as a Scottish samurai funeral director. I am in. That's like I am in. <laughs> Sign me and up. And a Jim Jarmusch. So, <laughs> like, once you got once you got past Bill Murray and you got to Iggy Pop, I'm like, I am fucking in. Iggy Pop's yeah. in this. Let's do this thing. He only does yeah. weird shit. Yeah. Weird shit. And he and he's a he's a zombie in it. And it's yeah. So yeah. And it's really playing on some of like the uh, the old classic zombie tropes where like zombies sort of tend to migrate towards things that they were familiar with in real life, but in sort of a tongue in cheek kind of way. So 
looks like fun. Yeah. And oh, here's a zombie movie I am not sure what to think about. Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead cast Dave Bautista in its starring role. I'm fine, man. I like Dave. <laughs> Listen to this goddamn plot synopsis. The adventure is set amid a zombie outbreak in Las Vegas, during which a man assembles a group of mercenaries to take the ultimate gamble, venturing into the quarantine zone to pull off the greatest heist ever attempted. This is a zombie heist movie. Oh, I love it. I am in. That sounds (laughs) awful, and I want to watch it. (laughs) Fuck. I want to be on your side, Zack Snyder, but you're not making it easy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i don't know man he just kind of sold me that sounds ridiculous i kind of want to see that now yeah like that oh, sounds of course the fast and furious fan in our group wants to see this movie yeah because it, <laughs> it sounds insane that's what i'm in for i just want to watch the spectacle yeah. guys i'm real easy put shiny lights and a bunch of fucking zombies getting shot up i'll watch it probably I mean, I'll run out to the theater and watch it, but I'll definitely show it, like, throw it on Netflix. <laughs> and then uh, this one is pretty cool, and not one that I would have expected, but once I heard about it, I was like, yeah, that really works. The Child's Play reboot is going to have Mark Hamill playing Chucky. Yeah, man. And I as soon like as I heard that, I was like, yep, that's perfect. <laughs> yep. My only concern is I hope he finds a new voice and just doesn't use the Joker, because if, if he just does the Joker, it's going to be real distracting. Yeah, yeah. But I am super sold on mark hamill well i mean he's he's a talented enough voice actor that i'm sure he would put a different spin on you know he'd be able to come up with a different timber to the voice or whatever but um and aubrey plaza is on that movie too and i fucking love aubrey plaza so yep um and that one's soon that's uh coming out in june june 21st so you know summertime when everybody wants to watch horror movies uh (laughs) yeah (laughs) this is one that i am personally really excited about because of where my company is headquartered the HBO is turning their Northern Ireland studio now that Game of Thrones is wrapped and finished filming into a huge museum and studio tour for Game of the Throne Game of Thrones, sort of like what Game of the Thrones. Game of, there it Game is. of the Thrones. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's what my, my dad calls Game of Thrones. There it is. <laughs> and so like I'm over, as our listeners will know, I'm in Northern Ireland for work usually a couple times a year. So if this is open by the next time I go, then I would definitely try and hit this up yeah you'll have to report in and uh because yes. you're the one who's gonna go over there all the time so yeah apparently it's it's set to open spring 2020 and uh, i'm not totally sure yeah so it's Ooh. still it's about a year away that might be just in time for me to because i'm planning a little jaunt through europe before i come uh, back to canada next year so that might line up very nicely but we'll we'll have to see make a belfast up yeah you know because I was planning on hitting up Prague and going west from there because I do not give a shit <laughs> Eastern Europe. <laughs> but sorry, Eastern European fans, but I don't want to go. I wouldn't want to go to Eastern Europe right now anyway. So that's yeah. probably. Your, your vacation yeah, could get yeah. annexed. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Very quickly, too. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no thanks. So, uh, yeah, it could be. I could actually. We'll have to see when that actually opens because I could maybe oh, yeah. go to do that. Let's see. Yeah. Just a couple more things. One, this was uh, this past week was April Fools, which, you know, lots of websites and tech companies and stuff like that use for fun stuff. The only one that I really, I mean, I saw a bunch of them. The only one that I really sort of participated in was 
on Google Maps, you could play Snake yeah, I saw that. in certain cities. So I played that a couple times. But besides that, um, there were some other fun ones. Though. Did you guys see anything particularly interesting in April Fool's jokes? I saw one that I thought was an April Fool's joke, but we're going to talk about it in a second. I think it might actually be a legit thing. So yeah, okay. The only other one that I had had a little bit of fun with was yeah. Tinder's April Fools was that they were going to start doing height verification because like <laughs> they were reporting like, you know, 80% of men say that they're <laughs> over 6 feet on Tinder, but in reality, only like 20% of men are over 6 feet and so and a lot of dudes got real butthurt about it thinking it was real and like a bunch of people were like I'm deleting this app and it's like holy shit men's egos are so fragile very very oh man very fragile <laughs> that was the I think that was the only one I saw in cuz I was I don't know I think I just avoided April Fools altogether this year. I didn't usually I pray play mm-hmm. like a small prank on my my students like just so they can understand what it is, but I I didn't even bother this year. I don't know. It was not in the April Fools spirit. But. Yeah, it was one of those things where like, well, the, the meme that I saw getting shared around was uh, what the uh, Jim Carrey was arguing with Mussolini's granddaughter on Twitter. And like, no fucking April Fool's can beat that. Like, <laughs> that was real life. What could you say that would actually like <laughs> <Yeah>. top that? <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, this, the Internet is a weird place, guys. Yeah. And my very last bit of news uh, in sort of in something we talked about a few weeks ago is that uh, Captain Marvel passed a billion dollars worldwide in box office. So go Captain Marvel. Higher, further, faster. Yay. And probably still going to make money up until Endgame oh, yeah. comes yeah. out. Probably. So because pe- people are going to be wanting to catch up on who she is before the movie releases, probably. Yeah. So that'll be fun. Yeah. yeah. I'm uh, I might go see it again before Endgame comes out. Just because. Yeah. All right, uh, but that was all of the news that I had. Unless you guys wanted to add anything on, um, the only thing we I, uh, I just like I lost my tabs in a crash, so <laughs> we missed a an announcement or like some kind of rumor going around that my idea is actually happening. Somebody stole my idea and War for Cybertron. Uh, there's going to be a six episode Netflix series that's going to happen. I think in 2020. Okay, so there's a report going around that that's happening. It's I had it open, and I lost it. <laughs> but, um, one of the other Netflix animations, not Voltron, but another one of the anime-esque ones. The Ultraman? Nope. One of the other one. The other one. It's like Sekiro. No, Sekiro is that game that just came out. I don't know. It starts with an S. It's that studio that's producing it. So everybody's like up in arms. But I'm like, hey, if it's going to be like a super mature take on War for Cybertron, and it's going to be a show that I can watch over like, it's basically going to be like a three hour movie. Well, it'll be a two and a bit hour movie because you're going to get six 22 minute episodes. Mm-hmm. I'm like, ah, that's fine. Good. Just keep Michael Bay away from it. And let me watch my Netflix Transformers. So that's the, a, the the first installment is titled Transformers Siege and is scheduled for 2019. There you go. See, there you go. And on, yeah, on Netflix. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, uh, unfortunately they didn't hire me to do that, but <laughs> it is happening, which is awesome. So I'm pretty excited. It's being yeah. produced by, uh, all spark animation, rooster teeth and polygon pictures. Yep. That's cool. All right. Cool. I have one little bit of news is that the first uh, photos started to come out for the new Terminator Dark Fate movie, and it shows Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor. Being badass. God. Badass as fuck. I'm yeah. so glad she's back, and mm-hmm. I might actually watch this Terminator movie because she's in it, and that's 
that's pretty much it. Because, like, um, I love the character of Sarah Connor. I really liked Sarah Connor Chronicles when it was out. And I think that she is the most compelling character in the entire series, pretty much. As well, she should be. But either way, like, I'm just, I'm actually excited for a Terminator movie. And this is the first time in probably, like, a really long time. It's the first time since the third one, I think, that I've been excited for one uh, where I won't be, like, automatically disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Here's <laughs> hoping, anyway. Yeah. Or I hope. That's anyway. one I'll, I'll definitely I'll definitely be looking for the trailer on that one for sure. Yeah, yeah, me too. All right. Well, with that, let us move on to our Geek of the Week. Geek of the Week. Uh, which is the segment where we discuss the nerdiest slash geekiest things we've done in the past seven days or so. So... Let's go to Mark first. I can't actually talk about the nerdiest thing that I did this week because it's a fucking secret for somebody's wedding that I'm planning some stuff for. So I can't talk oh. about this huge illustration that's like super awesome. I'm getting a flag made and stuff. I can't really talk about nice. anything more than that right now, but it is impressive. Are they, are they listeners? Uh, <laughs> is it listeners that are getting married? They're family. So maybe there's enough rumor milly bullshit with my mom that. I don't want to get it. Okay. So, Karen yeah. can't be trusted. Karen, yeah, Karen, Karen can't be trusted for shit. Karen's loose lips. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Easy there, Tiger. First of oh, all, phrasing. Oh. Phrasing. 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 God damn it. Hold on. I got I to do the arch. Mark said it, not me. <laughs> phrasing. Mark said it, not oh, me. There's not enough vodka <laughs> and therapy in the world. <laughs> All right. Well, in that case, what's your actual geek of the week? My brain just shut off. Uh, I'm done. That's yeah, it. that's it. S- Steven, our guest who uh, hasn't heard this segment yet. When you hear this, when the podcast actually comes out, I apologize. Yeah, yeah. He's, <laughs> all, all these people are going to listen to the first part of this podcast, wanting to listen to his story, and they're going to hear that first. Yeah. Uh, so that's awesome. What did I do this week? Okay. You know what? You got it. Oh, I saw the tea party on Tuesday. It was great. So much fun. They played Halcyon Days. I was I had a good time. We went over to that Hamilton, uh, the Hamilton place, first Ontario Center theater that they have. Okay. That they play like all the time now. Um, it was on Tuesday night. They're in the middle of like that Black River tour. So I figured, you know, for 40 bucks, I can run in and see the tea party 20 minutes away from my house. So I was like, yeah, I'm in. So I, I took a, a couple friends and we went and saw the tea party that night. They'd never been to a concert before. I hate taking concerts. At all? No, I, I hate taking rookies to it. Like, this is me, like, super jaded, like, over it. I, I yeah. walk in five minutes before the show starts. Like I follow everybody on Twitter. So I know what's going on. This is me dealing with like people who've never been to a concert before. So like every question that can get asked is being asked of me and I'm exhausted by it. Like five minutes in, <laughs> like what time should we meet? The show starts at nine. Wait, but the thing says eight. I'm like, it's, the doors are at eight. The band starts at nine. I never show up to any of these things before 15 minutes until the band's about to start, but you guys can mm. do whatever you want. Like, well, should we have dinner first? I'm like, well, after this line of questioning, no, but, nope. <laughs> <laughs> but so uh, yeah, no, they had a good time and tea party was awesome as usual. So good times. Their 30th anniversary is coming up. Oddly enough, they they have a show scout. The joke of the night was that uh, their 30th anniversary is coming up the night of their, the 30th anniversary of their first show. They will be playing a show in Beansville was the joke <laughs> that Jeff was telling. Yeah, they somehow got scheduled to play some festival like in Beamsville the night of the 30th anniversary as opposed to being home in Windsor. So that was You know we would be there though in Beamsville and whatever fucking cow It's this summer. What are you talking about? I'm absolutely going to go. I I will totally, I will report in on that show from the podcast because 
absolutely I'll go because it's right <laughs> up the street. Like that's like it's actually probably just as fast to drive to get to Hamilton as it is to get to Beamsville because I don't have to get off the highway to get home. Yeah. <clears throat> and then drive through all shitty Hamilton because all our one way streets and bullshit. Fuck that. Probably easier. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. I blanked. My brain is broken. And I saw the tea party again this week. So thanks, Tim. Whew. There you go. Longest week of the week ever. <laughs> Paul, how about you? Uh, I guess the geekiest thing I did this week was host an anime marathon at my apartment. Oh, yeah. You're telling us about that. Yeah. yeah I had my closest friend here in Korea. Uh, she is pretty big anime fan but her genre we decided to side a side b our anime experience and i showed her anime about sadness and magical girls and she showed me a boys love anime which is a pretty popular genre in general but this is a fantasy fish out of water boys love anime which sounds bad but it's actually like they're all legal age it's just it's called shonen ai is the the genre and it's basically just like dudes flirting with each other for a hundred episodes and never actually having sex because it's it's gay relationships written by women for women. So it's not really like, <laughs> yeah, it's just like really super innocent, fluffy romance stuff. That And so I made, she made me watch that. I made her watch Madoka Magica, which is a super depressing, like psychological horror, magical girl series. And it was really fun. We had a, I made a charcuterie platter and we ate a shit ton of food and, watched anime for the whole day and it was good nice yeah cool well my geek of the week actually ties into our meat of the episode so to go ahead and spoil it we're gonna have my friend steven on the podcast very soon and he later this episode and uh he's a five-day jeopardy champion whose run ended earlier this week and my geek of the week is on his last episode he mentioned our middle earth movie marathon because he's attended it for at least two years, maybe three years. You know, they have like their little like fun facts kind of thing. And on uh, on his final episode, which he didn't know at the time was going to be his final episode, uh, he mentioned attending our marathon and like all the rules that like you have to stay up the whole time and like win the trivia contest at the end if there are multiple people that stayed awake and how he won the our golden dragon trophy and used it as the cake topper on his groom's cake. So our little middle earth marathon in Atlanta, Georgia is jeopardy famous. Yay. Jeopardy famous. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, with our, with our geeks of the week covered, uh, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come right back with Steven. All right. So now that we've finished up our geeks of the week, we can move on to our meat of the episode. Quizzical meat, <laughs> big old brain meat. <laughs> so this week, dear listeners, we have a special guest with us, my friend Stephen, uh, who just finished a five-day run as champion of Jeopardy. Say hello to our listeners, Stephen. Hey, everybody. It is great to be here uh, chatting with you this evening. Yeah, so we're happy to have you on. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, so um, we'll get to give our li- listeners a little bit of context. I ha- have known Stephen for, I guess, what? I mean, you guys got married like two years ago. And we knew each other yeah, probably, been, and you were dating for what, a couple of years before that? Yeah, we were dating for almost two years before we got married. So it's probably been about, you know, three and a half years by now. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so I knew Steven's wife before I knew Steven and she was a friend, friend of a friend and sort of started coming to our cocktails and cupcakes events and stuff. And we had shared interests and in many nerdy things. And then when Steven came into the picture, he started uh, attending some of our parties and stuff like that too. And then. Over the years, we've just, you know, become friends. So uh, we do tiki double dates and stuff like that. It's uh, a lot of fun. 
<laughs> um, we know how to have a good time. Yes. So yeah, Stephen was on Jeopardy recently. Uh, his episode started was that the first one was on the twenty seventh of March, yep. and then uh, March twenty seventh, and then up to this past Wednesday, April third. Correct. That is correct. That was my run. Awesome. So Stephen, to give our, I mean, you can you know go look it up. Uh, Stephen Grade, you can go look up his performance and everything. But he, <laughs> he said, was a five day champion. Ended up with a haul of over one hundred fifteen thousand. Was that correct? Yeah, it came out to, uh, I believe it was $116,501. That is awesome. <laughs> congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> it's, it still sounds weird to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was super fun watching you uh, on the show and everything. But um, so, so we want to just talk to Stephen a bit about his experience sort of getting on the show, what it was like being on the show, and then sort of watching the episodes and everything after. So First, go to Steven and just say, what's your background with Jeopardy? Like, did you grow up watching it a lot or have you always been a fan? Do you have any like particular memories related to the show? Yeah, definitely. Um, it was, I'm sure it was for me, like it was for a lot of people who grow up well in a market where Jeopardy airs around 7, 730, which it was always right after dinner appointment viewing. Mm-hmm. Me and the family would plop down on the couch and uh, watch Wheel of Fortune at 7 to kind of warm our brains up. And then we would uh, settle in for Jeopardy at 730 for, you know, the, uh, the real trivia uh, yeah. going on from 7.30 to 8 o'clock. I was going to say, that's some subtle shade, not so subtle shade at Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no shade intended, but I, you know, I found out this this past week as I was live tweeting the airings in our market. Jeopardy's a syndicated show, so it's up to each local affiliate when it airs. So there are some places that they get Jeopardy like Price is Right time of day, like 10.30 a.m. Oh. And that's that's way too early for any serious trivia. But apparently there's a big <laughs> divide between places that get wheel first versus places that get Jeopardy first. It's like the great schism of game shows. It's like each side thinks that the other are a bunch of heathens. Oh. <laughs> uh, and, and to me, it just makes sense that like, you know, you ease into the evening with wheel and then like Jeopardy is where you have to start using just like, you know, all, all sorts of different kinds of knowledge versus it being strictly word puzzles. So no, no shade on wheel at all. I'm not great at word puzzles, so I probably wouldn't do as good on wheel as a lot of other people would. But to me, it was always kind of like, you know, the nice way to kind of stretch your mind out before you, you dive into Jeopardy. Uh, but for us uh, in, in the Atlanta market, it was always 7.30, just sitting down uh, with my family after, uh, after dinner. And it was like that, you know, growing up as long as I can remember. I was always probably better than most, I guess. I really, I don't think anybody really noticed that I was good at stuff like this until actually we were watching an episode of Rock and Roll Jeopardy on VH1 back when uh, Jeff, Jeff Probes used to host it in the oh, yeah. I'd forgot those about are, that. Those are shows I would like to challenge you, like get Paul and I to challenge you on that one. Because for you, <laughs> Rock and Roll Jeopardy's like Paul and I's thing. That would be, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it was mine too, and you can imagine how happy I was on one of my episodes when I got Music Legends as a final Jeopardy oh, nice. category. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, so I, I, can, I distinctly remember watching Rock and Roll Jeopardy in probably like 1998 or so uh, with some friends of my parents, and then them all just staring at me like mouths agape as I ran the board on like 80s new wave one hit <laughs> wonders. Like my only exposure to these songs was like compilation CD infomercials. Yeah. But for some reason, that all just stuck in my head. And it turned out that I had a memory for I could just, you know, see this little fact or piece of information from anywhere. And it would just kind of stick with me. Uh, So from there, it was always, you know, I was always a big reader. I always had, you know, a really curious mind. If there was something that interested me, I would, you know, take the time to learn more about it and research it myself. 
And I didn't do that with, you know, preparing for Jeopardy or any other game show in mind. I just did it because that was how my brain worked. Like if you want to learn something about something, you know, you take it upon yourself to to do the work and put it in. And uh, little did I know that, you know, 20 years after sitting around <laughs> watching Rock and Roll Jeopardy that day, or, you know, I don't know, not 35 years, but probably 25 to 30 years of sitting on the couch watching Jeopardy, uh, eventually it would pay off for me. Nice. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, how about the re- rest of our hosts? Mark, Paul, what, what were your memories of Jeopardy? Were you big fans, occasional fans? I was in, uh, I had a long block of loving Jeopardy because I, I am also a big trivia nerd and I really enjoy trivia in general. And I actually did once apply to be on Jeopardy, but like I never really took it seriously. Um, <laughs> but I really, I really enjoy trivia in general and always been a fan of Jeopardy. And especially I really love Jeopardy parodies, Saturday Night Live in particular. <laughs> um, and, and anytime there's a the Winona Ryder Bjork episode in particular, this just speaks to me a lot. Uh, yeah, no, I I love Jeopardy, and it's my go. It is my go-to game show if I ever watch a game show. It has- it's on Netflix right now. You can go watch it on like on Canadian Netflix, like rerun like the, tur- the Tournament of Champions and stuff. Yeah, yeah I was like there. that threw me off, so I was flipping through it. I'm like, oh man, this is. I don't need this right now. Like I'm just going to sit here and watch a bunch of <laughs> Jeopardy for no reason. Steven, you could be on Netflix someday. I, I know if, if things go my way, who knows? Maybe I'll get some of those sweet, sweet Netflix residuals. <laughs> nice. Those checks for pennies <laughs> once a month. Is sweet. <laughs> sweet. That's the dream, guys. Getting those Netflix pennies yeah. residuals. You know, good times. <laughs> well, in my case, I, I, I'd watched Jeopardy like on and off. There were definitely periods where I would watch it pretty religiously, uh, like late high school when I was like, just an antisocial well not not by choice uh but uh, a, whole, a lot of friends a little bit of a loner so jeopardy was something i would watch quite a bit and then in university in my statistics class we had to do like an end of term project and me and two of my housemates did our project on jeopardy we recorded back in like the days of like vhs recorded i think about 30 or 40 episodes throughout the course of the term and did a whole statistical analysis on like how much you should bet on uh, on like your double jeopardies and like if there were certain spots on the board that people got right more often than others which there shouldn't be in theory you know with the exception of obviously the questions getting harder as you go further down and like the rates of people getting questions correct between like you know a $200 question and a $2000 question and everything so I think I could borrow that I, can't for the life of me remember any of those results but <laughs> no i mean you'd be amazed at how much you think of Jeopardy and you think of it just as a trivia competition, but there's so much math that goes into it. There's so much thought that goes into it. You know, game theory is guaranteed to be a part of every episode. It's the one category that you know is going to come up because you have to start playing the numbers and playing your, you know, what you think your opponents are going to wager when you get to final Jeopardy. I mean, people do term papers, they do mm-hmm. theses, they do just these in-depth statistical re- analyses of this game show. And the fact that it lends itself to that you know, really speaks to kind of the level of thought that went into creating it and, you know, the caliber of a show that it is. There's really nothing else that requires not just knowledge of, you know, facts and of trivia, but of, you know, all these advanced mathematical and psychological concepts. It's it's one of a kind. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Stephen, could you maybe tell us a little bit about your experience with the application and screening and interview process, basically how you get on the show? Or how you personally got on the show? Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, it's it's a three-step process to getting on the show. Uh, the first step, which actually is taking place next week, is the online test. 
You can sign up for it on the Jeopardy website. It's uh, 50 questions. You get 15 seconds per question. And they're all uh, different categories. There might be, you might get, you know, multiple literature questions or multiple world geography questions, but you're not going to get two questions about the same subject. They they told us when we got out to the show that about 85,000 people took it last year and the number is growing every year. So you do the online test and then you wait. And if you get a score that's high enough, I've seen people say that it's 35 or more, but I don't know that for sure. Uh, But if you get over that certain threshold, you get put into a pool where you can be picked out for an in-person interview. There probably aren't as many slots to interview as there are people who pass. So I would guess that there's a random element to getting picked. But of the 85,000 who take the test, about 2,000 people end up getting an in-person interview. They do those in-person interviews in cities all throughout the country. You pick which city you would like to have yours in when you take the test. When I went to mine, which happened to be in Atlanta, there were about 40 people there, and they did a couple of sessions of interviews uh, throughout the day. So when you get selected to the in-person interview, you've got a few weeks to prepare. And when you get there, you take another test, uh, same format, 50 questions, 15 seconds per, all different categories, uh, just to make sure that you didn't cheat on your online one and that you're you know, actually as good as you came across as being. <laughs> then after that, they tally up your scores and they, they don't tell you what you scored, but you can kind of get a sense for it by you know, asking around the room what everybody got for each question. After that, you do a mock game with, you know, Alex isn't there, but they, you have buzzers, they're asking you questions, you have to ring in just like you would on the show, uh, three people at a time, just to kind of see how you'd come across on camera. Uh, they're filming you while you do that so they can review it later. And while you're there, the people who are hosting the interviews, the Jeopardy contestant coordinators, are giving you advice on how you can come across on camera better. You know, maybe you're fidgeting a little, maybe you're speaking too loudly or not loudly enough, and they kind of give you a little bit bit of feedback just to, you know, make sure that you're coming across as your best, most prepared self on camera. Was there anybody during that stage where, like, you could tell, like, no, they're not going to put this person on TV for whatever reason? You can kind of get a sense of it. You know, some people are a little bit more nervous. Some people are kind of shifting their weight back and forth or moving their hands all around while they're holding the buzzer. You know, you'll sometimes Mm -hmm. see people who are a little bit more animated behind the podium. But uh, when it comes down to it, even if you're, you know, the smartest person in the room, they're still making a TV show and they want it to be an enjoyable experience for the viewer. So they want to make sure that you're not freezing up just because you're on camera or just because you're in front of people. They want to make sure that you're not kind of distracting from the viewing experience for the folks at home. Uh, and that's probably, uh, that would be my guess what that part of the uh, the audition process is about. After you do that, uh, they continue filming you and then they kind of do a rapid fire interview session with you. For the interview, you have to give them, you know, those famous Jeopardy fun facts about yourself that you would like to be asked about on the show. But instead of just asking you about those five facts, so you can have like a rehearsed anecdote. They kind of spin those facts off into trying to learn more about you. And as I sat there watching, the reason I figured that they do this is because if you get on the show, you're going to have to do about 30 seconds of improv with Alex Trebek in front of a live audience and with 9 million people getting ready to watch you at home. (laughs) Uh, And you need to be quick on your feet. Uh, You know, you may give Alex a list of five things you want to talk about. He might want to talk about something entirely different. He might he might use something that you give him as a jumping off point to go in an entirely different direction. And you've got to, you know, you've got to show that you've got enough personality and you're quick enough on your feet that you can kind of go toe to toe with him and have a little bit bit of fun banter back and forth. <laughs> that Alex Trebek, he's a wily guy. 
Oh, he is. Uh, my first episode of taping, he went off script. He uh, did not go by the book and read off one of my little anecdotes that I had prepared for. That was when he asked about your job, your sports consultancy? Yes, he did. And I, I kind of thought that he might go in that direction because my job, is, you know, sports industry consultant, it's kind of vague and it's not something that you really see very often. So I, I have to explain my job to people enough that I had a little, uh, you know, a rote answer in my back pocket. But in the, in the moment, you know, Alex looked, Alex has a little note card with everybody's facts written on them. And he looks down at my card and then he looks at me and then he kind of gets this mischievous look in his eye. And then I was just like, oh no, I'm doing live improv comedy with Alex Trebek. Somebody help me. So Steven, I'm assuming you're, you're uh, an Atlanta native, right? Like you're from down there originally. Uh, yes, born and raised. Yeah, Alex is a Canadian. We like doing that kind of stuff to people. We're gonna, we're gonna mess with you if we can. So that's I've it. known Tim long enough that I should have seen it coming. You should absolutely <laughs> see your friends with Tim. He should have warned you ahead of time. He's he's a bad Canadian friend. Tim is. There you go. Uh, so, but that was the uh, so that was the third part of that in, of the uh, in person audition. The uh, you know it's kind of a rapid fire uh, interview where they ask about you, ask what you would do with the money you know, ask, you know, some of your fun facts, but then they might go into more depth about it just to see if you've got more that you can do off the top of your head than just what you came in prepared to say. I wonder how many people these days are just saying like, I'm paying off my student loans. And that's, <laughs> <laughs> like, that's, yeah. Especially um, in America. Yeah, more than yeah. there used to be, I'm sure. But I, yeah. yeah. If I'm paying off medical bills or something. <laughs> I was just going to make a, like a healthcare joke, but I... <laughs> But, you know, sitting through the interviews and listening to 40 people do theirs, you learn that like Jeopardy people who want to be on the show are a really self-selecting group of really similar people. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> everybody wants to travel. Everybody loves to cook. Everybody loves to read. Everybody does crosswords in their spare time. So <laughs> I was uh, I wasn't called until the end of the session. I was probably one of the last five or 10 people to go. And by the time I was going up, I was like, oh, my God, I'm exactly like all of these other people. There's no way that I'm going to make myself stand out. And uh, luckily, my my body was possessed by some kind of like improv comic trickster god. And I actually managed to get off a couple of laugh lines while talking about, you know, how I like to cook and how I'd like to travel with the money and all this stuff, which <laughs> I assume helped make me stand out because uh, which brings me to the third part of getting on the show, which is you sit around and you wait. After you do your in-person audition, they can call you any time between then and then 18 months from that day to tell you that you're on the show. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you hear stories about, you know, some like all time greats, some tournament of champions, caliber players and winners who had to audition three, four five times before they actually made it on the show just because there's so few slots. Eighty five thousand people took the test, about two thousand people do the interview and only about 400 people a year actually get on the show. So you sit around and, you know, you do what you want with those however many months. Maybe you keep studying. Maybe you just kind of file it in the back of your head and assume, oh, you know, I'll get it next time. I don't think they're going to call me. Maybe I could have done better with my stories or my test. But that didn't happen to me. I waited about seven months and then I got a call from a uh, Los Angeles area code telling me that I needed to be out in uh, Culver City in three weeks because I was going to be on the show. So, so that was uh, the last stage of the audition process, which was last minute panic as I tried to cram seven months of studying into about three weeks. <laughs> well, Stephen, I, I think you just gave me my idea. If I ever uh, get to that interview stage, not that I've ever applied to be on Jeopardy, I think my answer will probably be, uh, you know, with, with what I would do with the money would be, 
Uh, I will buy a bunch of crossword books so that I can use them while I cook around the world. <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, yeah, just combine it all, it all together. I guarantee you that's one that they have never heard before. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you sort of led into our next question here was sort of what, what did your prep look like? Like what kind of practice did you do? Is it just reading a bunch of like trivia or word yeah G- give us an idea how you studied and prepped for the show well, the best the best prep happened you know it happened over the past 25 or however many years which is watching the show uh just kind of getting a feel for what categories of questions come up most often what types of subjects or what types of you know individual questions tend to come up again and again and if you haven't been watching the show as long as i had or if you want to be able to kind of compile that on all in one place, there's a website that actually compiles every game of the show ever played and every question that was ever asked on the show. So people much, much smarter than I have actually like uh, gone through that and created computer programs that they use to kind of track their knowledge based on how they do on the show. I'm much more analog than that. So I just used an Excel spreadsheet and went through and kind of tallied up, you know, how often do world geography questions come up? How often do U.S. geography questions come up? You know, literature, Shakespeare, uh, the Bible, mythology, uh, just kind of going through a selection of games and using that to help me determine what I was most likely to see. And then from there, I kind of made a Venn diagram of what am I least comfortable with and what is most likely to appear on the show. And I really targeted the stuff that fell into the middle of that, uh, of that Venn diagram. So I went back to that same website, it's called J-Archive, and I started doing keyword searches for some of those topics to see what about those certain topics, what questions am I most likely to be asked. So for example, just from watching and from uh, looking over some games on the website, I knew that Shakespeare was likely to come up during my time on the show. Uh, So from there, a keyword search of Shakespeare and all his different plays showed me that, you know, for something like Hamlet... I'd need to know settings, I'd need to know quotes, I'd need to know characters, relationships, key events. But if something like Titus Andronicus, I didn't need to know much more than the words revenge and pie. (laughs) (laughs) Just because Titus Andronicus doesn't come up as often? Yeah, exactly. Like there are some some things that are in like, there's there's a Jeopardy canon. Like there's a, you know, a series of things that tend to come up more often on the show. Uh, So by using, you know, the website and my knowledge of the show to kind of narrow that down, I was able to determine what is the most important stuff for me to study. So I did that same thing for a variety of categories just to kind of narrow it down. And then I started going through, you know, any old flashcards or study guides that I could find from high school or college for categories that come up often. I had one for U.S. presidents, one for the Bible, one for uh, mythology, explorers, U.S. history. I went out and bought a couple of decks of Shakespeare quote flashcards because I knew that was something that I was likely to get. And I ended up did getting that actually. Yeah. Uh, Sporkle was actually a really good resource for rote memorization. Things like U.S. capitals, world capitals, locations of countries throughout the world. But that still left, you know, a whole lot of stuff in the Jeopardy canon that I didn't necessarily have readily accessible. So I ran out to a used bookstore, bought the biggest general knowledge book that I could find that had information on all sorts of topics, summaries of uh, information in, you know, chemistry and classical music and sports and movies and like the history of architecture and philosophy and all this stuff that sounded like it was a good fit for the Jeopardy canon. It didn't go into too much depth on any of those, but it was a good enough overview to kind of prepare me for the level of questions I was likely to get. I don't know who it was that said it. I think it might have been Ken Jennings, but if I'm misattributing it, I'm sorry. But uh, someone who was on Jeopardy once said that the knowledge you need for Jeopardy is a mile wide and an inch deep. So just basically, you need Uh, to know the highlights of everything 
but you don't need to sweat the super detailed stuff. So, you know, you may not yeah. need to know who played shortstop for the Atlanta Braves in 1976, but you probably need to know who Hank Aaron was. Fair enough. Well, it going in down that same sort of route, I mean, based on what you've already told us, I'm guessing you might not have spent a whole lot of time focusing on, you know, brushing up your sports knowledge or maybe your music knowledge. Was there any other categories where you were like, yeah, I think I'm pretty good on this. I'm not really going to bother studying too much in it. Sports was definitely one of them. You know, <laughs> popular music, uh, another one. Movies, movies come up a lot. Uh, I'm a movie buff. So I felt that I was pretty confident that if they threw, you know, directors or film music or, you know, best picture winners or other award show errata, uh, I was probably in a pretty good position on that already. So I did some brief refreshing of that just to make sure that everything was fresh on my mind. But for the most part, I just relied on the knowledge that I already knew I had and spent my time on, you know, classical music or Norse and Egyptian mythology or chemistry and physics, just stuff that I hadn't had a reason about to think of since high school or college in some cases, and made sure that, you know, all the heavy hitters from those categories were right on the top of my mind. Well, now I think we're, we're basically at the actual filming process. So can you give us a bit of an overview of you know, I don't think people understand uh, sort of the compacted schedule that, that these episodes are filmed on. So you run us through that a little bit. Yeah, it uh, it tends to catch a lot of people by surprise when you say it, uh, just because they, they do a good job on the show of kind of keeping up the aura that it's one episode filmed each day with new contestants. And, you know, Alex has changed clothes and the defending champion has changed clothes. But the reality is they film a week's worth of episodes in a single day. Wow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so you fly out to Los Angeles, uh, you get picked up at the hotel in the morning, driven out to uh, the Sony Studios lot. They bring you in, they give you an orientation with the contestant coordinators, just letting you know, you know, here's how the show works, here's what you should do, here's what you shouldn't do, here's what people tends to find helping them, you know, uh, help them be successful on the show. Uh, that lasts probably an hour, an hour and a half, and then you get some time to go out on the stage, you know, stand behind the podiums, feel the buzzers, kind of get accustomed to how actual gameplay is going to work. And then everybody gets to do a part of a mock game where you're actually up there answering questions, buzzing in on the buzzer, you know, kind of acclimating yourself briefly to what it's going to be like before the show starts. But yeah, the, the five episodes in a day thing, they start filming probably <laughs> at about 1030 in the morning and they take an hour long break for lunch after the third game of the day. But other than that, you've got to, if you're the defending champion, You've got enough time to run off stage, change your clothes, get your makeup retouched, go to the bathroom, and then you're right back on there to play another game. So if you see somebody who's been out there for like a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, that means that they've done three games of Jeopardy in the span of, you know, probably two hours or so. Before lunch. That's yeah, crazy. Before lunch. Yeah, that was the thing when you told me about that, that I was like blown away by. Like, I can hardly imagine the pressure and the anxiety and the stress filming like that many episodes i know yours didn't all end up being like before you know in a mm. big block like that quite i was gonna ask that question like so you you won like a number of times mm -hmm. like you had five was it five episodes in a row? yeah i won five episodes in a row lost in my sixth okay so like did you not do those straight in a row like were you not on the show so i think that i the way it felt for me was actually timed probably ideally uh, my first game was a wednesday which meant it was the the last game before lunch so I got to sit there and mm. watch two games get played, you know, kind of get uh, from the audience. So kind of get a feel for what it looked like, you know, out there on stage, because the breaks at commercials are a little bit longer. There's a little bit more going on behind the scenes than uh, you get to see uh, on TV. 
Uh, so that kind of gave me a chance to see, okay, like this is what it's going to be like. Then uh, they called my name for that third game of the day. So I got to go out and play my first game and I was fortunate enough to win in it. And then instead of having to immediately turn around and do another one, I got to take an hour long break for lunch. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, let me temper Steven's humility here and say on that first show, (laughs) he dominated. He was not fortunate enough to win. He cleaned (laughs) up. I I did about as well as I (laughs) could have, you know, reasonably hoped to do. I I had a guaranteed win by the time we got to Final Jeopardy. So I didn't need to sweat out that last question at all, which was I still had to sweat out doing the math to make sure that I was, in fact, guaranteed to win. And I wasn't about to screw up in front of, you know, nine million viewers on TV. (laughs) But other than that, that last question, I was able to just kind of exhale and not worry about it. And then you got the Final Jeopardy question right. So it didn't end up mattering. (laughs) Yeah. then I, then I got it right anyway, which in retrospect, I guess if it had been a close game, I could have walked away with more money. But hey, you know, I'll, I'll take the, the less stress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So I got to take an hour long break for lunch after that. And while it was the single most stressful lunch break of my entire life, uh, yeah, <laughs> much better to get all that stress out while I'm eating half a turkey sandwich in a fruit cup in the Sony commissary than to have to, you know, put on a change of clothes, go do makeup and then run back out and do it all over again. Uh, so the only time on that first day yeah. that I had to do the 10 minute thing was between uh, my second and third game, which were, excuse me, between the Thursday and Friday airings. Uh, and then after that, I had the rest of the evening off to try and unwind as best as I could before going back in the next morning. Now, uh, the way that things worked out, I ended up having to do that three game morning grind, you know, all in a row, which I suppose is an excellent problem to have. But it is way more difficult than, you know, coming in and having a lunch break and then only having to do two in a row. Yeah, well, I guess that puts even your eventual loss on that sixth episode in a different light when people realize that was your third episode of that morning. Like, that's that's a lot of a lot to have already gone through up up till that point. Oh, yeah. And like, I don't want to make any excuses about that third game. Uh, Rose and Alex, the two people who I were up against were, you know, excellent players, very intelligent, very quick on the buzzer. But there's a reason that it's been literally years since somebody won five games in a day. Mm -hmm. The last person to do it was Austin Rogers, you know, two, maybe three years ago, because, you know, it's just that difficult. It's incredibly hard to prepare for that because when you're at home practicing, you know, I did some I played through some games, you know, that I had on tape or on Netflix just to prepare for it. But I never considered that I would need to stand it up and play five games in a row. Yeah. Uh, I would do one or two at a time and I do it sitting on my couch or I do it wearing comfortable shoes. I wasn't really doing anything to simulate the actual experience of appearing on the mm-hmm. show. Uh, I would liken it to trying to do a marathon when the longest race you did in practice was the hundred meter dash. Like it's just, you may still be running, but you're not running the way you need to be running in order to, you know, prepare for that three game or five game gauntlet. Yeah. You ended up breaking a streak of there not being a five-time champion, right? It was something like, I'm looking on the Jeopardy fan website here, The there was like a 96-game streak where there had been nobody that had won more than four games, so you kind of broke a curse. Yeah, I am the breaker of the four-game curse now, uh, which was funny because at the time of filming, I was out there the uh, first couple of days of February. You know, it had been since October since somebody had won five games, But from October to the beginning of February, that's not, you know, a a ridiculously long amount of time. The longest it had ever been between five game winners, I think, was about 110 games. So mine ended up being either the like third or fourth longest streak ever. But at the time, I had no idea that was happening. 
and the staff and crew on set are, you know, understandably very tight lipped about letting spoilers out. Right. So they didn't want to let any of us know, hey, you know, it's been this long since this happened. So as I kept watching at home in the seven weeks between my filming and my episodes airing, you know, there were several really, really strong players that weren't able to win that fifth game. And then about a week before my episode started airing, Jeopardy put out a promo video kind of hyping up this whole four game curse thing. You know, who's going to be the one to break it? And I did the math in my head and I realized that it was going to be me. (laughs) That there there was there weren't enough people left to do it before. Like I knew who the the defending champion was when I first got out there, and I knew how many games that I won, and I knew how many days there were before he started his winning streak. So I was kind of like, oh, like I've become a marketing tool almost. This is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. That's awesome. That's pretty cool. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but even, you know, winning five games over two days is insanely difficult. Winning five games in a single day is re- just mind-blowingly hard. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. But uh, they, they do do a good job of kind of keeping up that fiction. They tell everybody to bring, you know, at least three changes of clothes just in case you keep winning. Mm-hmm. Alex has a closet of who knows how many suits and ties that he changes into between things. And, you know, I mean, even when I was up on stage, I tried to make sure when I was talking with Alex to talk about things that happened yesterday or earlier in the week, not before lunch, just because that's kind of, yeah. you know, that's the the fiction of the show. Like to use a wrestling term, that's, you know, Jeopardy kayfabe. And, you, yeah. you, you know, you yeah. want to, you know, like play by their rules. It's that's that's how they do it. So I wanted to try and, you know, stick to that and honor that. Yeah, because I, I know on the uh, the episode on Monday on the 5th, they had like a gag about that it was April Fool's Day, even though it had been filmed like a month and a half in advance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We had we celebrated April Fool's Day on February 4th out there on the uh, Sony Pictures lot. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> what, what else about sort of the filming process? Like, I know you told me that uh, you were surprised at the or, or a little uh, surprised at the level of interaction you had with uh, with Alex, for instance. Yeah, well. So about 99% of the interactions that the contestants have with Alex is what you see on TV. Um, He's got his own dressing room on a separate side of the studio. We never saw him until he came walking out from behind the giant clue board to start each game. And I guess when you think about it, it all makes sense because after the quiz show scandals of the 50s, uh, there were so many Mm -hmm. rules and laws put in place regulating the amount of contact that an employee of a game show can have with a participant. So Alex gets all the answers at about 7.30 in the morning so he can start, you know, working on, you know, his pronunciation and enunciation and making sure that he's got all the clues and categories straight. So if he were to see one of us, you know, somebody might think that there was something fishy going on. It's the same thing with the rest of the staff. You know, the contestants for a given day, they keep a very tight watch on us. If one of us has to go to the bathroom, an employee of the show is going to walk us there and walk us back to make sure that we're not meeting up with anybody or looking anything up on a smartphone or anything like that. We all sit at the same table at lunch, sequestered from everybody else who works at Sony Pictures. person who selects who goes on each show is a lawyer who's employed by an independent company, not affiliated with Sony or the production company at all, just to make sure that everything is as you know on the level and above board as it possibly can be. So for that reason, you know, what you see on TV is pretty much ever, all that you get with Alex. You know, I had a little bit more with him after my last game or that what you see the contestants talking to him over the credits of each episode. But other than that, he is what he appears to be on TV. (laughs) Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but your episode would have been filmed before the announcement of his cancer diagnosis, correct? Yes. Yes, it was. That happened probably a month after my episodes filmed. I don't know if he was aware or if anybody at the show was aware, you know, he seemed like he always does like, you know, 
just classy and sharp as attack. Uh, you know, he's he's the icon, like one of the all time titans of of television. And he, you know, maintained that same aura, same sound, you know, looked the same, acted the same. I never would have guessed that, you know, anything was going on with him. But, you know, I know that I speak for everybody who's affiliated with the show in any way, you know, whether they work for it or they've been on it or they watch it that, you know, I am hoping for the best for him. Yeah, absolutely. And so are we. But I mean, that's that's another one of those Canadian things, right? Like we're just all classy and sharp as attack and never let stuff get to us. That's just another. (laughs) Agreed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know you talked to me a a little bit as your episodes were coming out about uh, sort of your interactions with the the other contestants. What was that like? You know, what are you allowed to talk with them with? What are you not like was were they all pretty friendly or did you form any rivalries? Who do you hate? Tell us, tell us that. (laughs) (laughs) So they actually, uh, the, the folks who work on the show, you know, they kind of encourage camaraderie amongst the contestants because it's, you know, obviously a very high stress situation. This is something that some of us have been working towards for years. And this is our, you know, one shot in all likelihood to actually have a chance to appear on the show. And while, we would all probably get along great in normal circumstances. You know, like I said, we're a very self-selecting group. We tend to have lots of the same interests, lots of the same hobbies. The reality of it is, is that Jeopardy is a zero-sum game. And we know that at the end of the day, you know, no more than four or five people in that room will have actually won on the show. Despite that, I really feel like I made some really strong friendships from some of the people that I was out there with. They're just people who are really easy to talk to. You know, I could on the way there, there was a one of the people I ended up going up against uh, is a gentleman who was born in England, but uh, lives just outside of Atlanta. So we were talking about, you know, living in Atlanta and Atlanta United and just like, you know, hitting it off like like anybody would. Atlanta United is our <laughs> soccer team. I know that not, not a lot of our <laughs> listeners probably follow the uh, the American Football uh, League. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm you know. Huge, huge fan. But and, uh, you know, it's just kind of like a nice, easy icebreaker for someone like, oh, you know, I'm sure that you love the sport. You know, we've got a great team here. Let's talk about it. But it was easy to talk about, you know, like uh, Lord of the Rings or sci fi movies or our pets with all the people in the green room. And they're, you know, the contestant coordinators are kind of like egging you on, like, you know, don't be panicked, be relaxed, have fun. And, you know, you really do hear stories about people who appear on the show together, just forging these lifelong, you know, incredible friendships. And I think that I was lucky enough to kind of, you know, manage to do that in my time on the show. And I hope that, you know, time proves that I'm correct because they were just, you know, such a lovely, wonderful group of people that honestly, like part of me feels, you know, a little guilty almost that with as well as I was doing, it was preventing like some of these amazing people from getting to feel that same thing that I was, you know, like I would have loved to have seen some of the folks that I go up against. I mean, all the folks that I went up against, honestly, like be able to experience the stuff that I that I got to. And I really hope that they all had a wonderful time out there on the show. I wish that our film dates had been different so I could sit at home and watch them succeed instead of us having to go head to head. But that's the nature of the game. They tell us in the green room that the folks who work on the show don't really view it as a competition between the competitors. They really view it as the three of us who are answering questions against the show's writers. They want to see if we as a group can, you know, outthink and outsmart people who are, you know, thinkers and smart folks for a profession. And I really did kind of view it that way that I I was proud that some of the games I was on, you know, we aced it like we nailed these categories. We caught some of the trick questions that they were going to ask. And we did that as a group. 
you know, it was it was just a really, really nice bunch of folks. And I'm really, really fortunate that I got to spend time with them. Nice. Yeah. And you uh, you had very few incorrect questions over your run, too, is what something like six or seven total or something like that? Or it was somewhere in that neighborhood. I tried to kind of stick to a strict no guessing policy as long as I could. If I wasn't 100 percent sure, I didn't want to ring in because playing practice games at home, you realize that if you skip a question, you know, no harm, no foul. But if you start, you know, buzzing in on stuff that you're maybe like 50 or 75 percent on and you get it wrong, that's how you can really put yourself in a hole really quickly. So while I'd like to say that my high percentage of questions right was just a reflection of how smart I am, uh, it was a a strategic choice to help minimize risk. So you talked about going into negatives. What you're saying is that it's not like the Simpsons where they come in to try and collect the money if you're in the negatives app, (laughs) right? Like they're not like the people who lost and get their kneecaps broken by Alex and some goons, right? Like that was just the Simpsons joke. Yeah, that was actually something that I kept in mind while I was playing because... (laughs) You can't see it on TV, but they they keep a running tally of everybody's scores kind of a little off camera. So when you get to a daily double or final Jeopardy, you you can kind of glance up and know what to wager. Okay, yeah. And I keep reminding myself like that those aren't dollars up there. Like that those are points. That money is not real. If you get one wrong, it's not coming out of your bank account. Like, don't think of that as cash because it's all hypothetical until the game ends. Yeah, okay. Uh, so and I think that kind of helped me help keep me level. I was never really thinking of the game in terms of money won or money lost. I was just thinking of it in terms of like how many games I had won. Yeah, I I know I would have I would be like panicking and like guessing at stuff just because like I do that when I'm watching Jeopardy. And I know that that would be like my downfall if I if I was ever on the show. Yeah, that was something that I had to train myself not to do. If you're you know, if you're just playing for fun, like you want to see if you know the answer to all of them and you just throw stuff out there in hopes you really have to train yourself to prepare to act how you will on the show. If I didn't want to buzz in on stuff that I wasn't sure of, when I got out there, I had to make sure that I was only responding to stuff while watching that I actually, you know, would have done if I were on the show. Like I wanted my level of confidence to be that high in each answer. Oh, I have a question about yeah. your buzzer habits. Are mm-hmm. you a, bu- were you a buzzer tapper where you've tapped like a million times, like uh, trying to get in first? Or were you like a, one of the chill I press it once very confidently kind of buzzer person. So uh, just to go over the buzzers real quick, in case folks listening don't know how they work. This is actually like the one thing that I was like, you know what? I, I, I should have put that in the notes. I really, want to that. <laughs> <laughs> when I, I was watching it on Netflix and I was like, Oh shit. You know what I really wanted to ask about the buzzers? Cause I know that's like a thing people have because they're very particular, right? Yeah. So the way that the buzzers work is so Alex reads off each question and then there's someone off stage who has a button. And as soon as Alex finishes reading the clue, the person pushes the button and that unlocks your buzzers. So the first person to ring in after that button gets pushed is the one who's going to get the first shot to answer, unless you buzzed in before he pushed the button. If you do that, you get your buzzer shuts down for a quarter of a second. So you might buzz it twice, and but your first one was just a split second early. And that means that you go into the back of the line. So somebody who had, it's not so much about being quick on the buzzer, it's about figuring out the timing of the buzzer. There's also a couple of columns of lights on either side of the big clue board that light up once you're allowed to buzz in. So you don't have to do it entirely by sound. But I had read ahead of time that most people do find that they are more successful when they ignore the lights and they try to do it by sound. The Mario Kart method is basically what you're trying to say, right? Yeah, exactly. Don't, li- don't listen to the beeps <laughs> like, or don't look at the lights. Listen for the beeps. Yeah. But in my case, I tried doing that in rehearsal and I was terrible. Okay. 
not not only that. So uh, the contestant coordinators also tell you, like, just in case you get locked out, they want you to keep buzzing down in. They want you to keep slamming away at the buzzer because that's your only way to get back in in case everybody accidentally buzzed in early. They also tell you they want you to hold mm. your buzzer above the podium so they can see it on camera. That way, if they see you buzzing, but it's not registering on their machines, they'll they'll know. If you're hiding your buzzer, they may think you just don't know anything or you're just freezing up or you're just buzzing in too early. And that's why your buzzer isn't working. But if you keep it on camera, they can come in at a commercial break and check to make sure that your buzzer is still functioning properly. So I tried going based off of the sound of their voice instead of looking at the lights. And I tried slamming down in on the buzzer uh, during rehearsal. And I was probably the worst rehearsal contestant they have ever had on the buzzer. I thought I was going to wash out in embarrassing fashion after one game because I just could not get the timing right. So what I ended up having to do was completely ignore every piece of advice I had ever been given. The most comfortable position for my hands were to hold them at my sides behind my back instead of holding it above the podium. So I did that. I found that I was able to get in quickly just by looking at the lights instead of trying to guess based on sound. Because if you buzz in based on his voice, you have no way of knowing when that guy is going to hit the button. If you wait for the lights, you know that you're good to go. And I found that slamming down the buzzer repeatedly was kind of making me think that there was a cushion there that really didn't exist. I wasn't focusing in on that first click as much because I thought, well, if I mistime it on this first click, I've got another click right after it where maybe I'll get in. So I ended up holding my hands behind my back instead of keeping on camera. I used the lights instead of Alex's voice, and I would tap it one time and one time only. And, you know, I don't know what other people have done, but based on stuff I've advice I've read from former champions and the advice they give you in the green room, there aren't too many people who try to do it that way. I may just be a gigantic weirdo. I watch people all the time who are, you know, like throwing their whole body into it and, re- you know, really getting in on the buzzer hard, and they're successful that way. And After having tried to do that, I'm in awe of them because I would never be able to make that work. It was just not happening for me. So I ended up doing it my way. And fortunately, you know, it it was enough to carry me through, you know, a couple games where I was great on the buzzer, a few games where I was good enough on the buzzer. So, you know, I'm not saying it works for everybody, but I'm saying it worked for me. I'd like to thank you for lifting the veil on that one for me, because that, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. been something like since my childhood. It's like, what? how do the buzzers work? But OK, thank you. I appreciate it. Like, you always hear people like behind the scenes. They'll talk about like how the buzzers work and how they lock you out at certain points. And I was always curious, how does that exactly like work when you have the damn thing in your hand? So thank you. Yeah, that's really cool to know. Like, yeah, they've got they've got an electronic system. I forget what it's what it's called, but the acronym for it is Elvis. So Elvis will tell them like when somebody is buzzing in and Elvis will prevent somebody from being able to click if they're in too early. Nice. I was looking up your statistics on Jeopardy fan while uh, you were giving that answer. Great website. And uh, you were apparently over 40% in first on buzzer on all of your episodes. I think your max was around 52%. I think that might've been your first. Yeah. My first couple episodes, I really came out of the blocks just full speed ahead, which, you know, those were my first two games after having been there in the green room. Like, Oh my gosh, I can't figure out the buzzer. This is going to be horrible. Like I'm going to know every answer and I'm never going to be able to answer one because I'm so terrible. And then I just changed everything up. And apparently I stumbled onto something that really worked out well. Well, before we move on from the filming process, is there anything else during that that sort of period that you wanted to uh, to illuminate for our listeners? Well, you know, like one thing that kept coming to mind, even as I was out there, but especially afterwards, is that for all the studying and for all the preparation that you can do, you know, like really drilling down on the categories you think are going to come up. 
living life is was like my most effective study guide. I just had information I had gleaned from all sorts of different places that ended up appearing on the show. Just a few examples that I that you know sprung back to mind as I was watching the shows. In my first or second game, I had a category about hairstyles. I've never studied hairstyles, but I knew them from the character customization menus on Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. There it is. Um, nice. Yeah. Like <laughs> nice. I, I got history questions and warfare questions right from playing Civilization V and Crusader Kings 2. I ended up getting a science final Jeopardy question right because of a movie podcast I had listened to about a movie that I've never even seen. Nice. <laughs> it's not like it's not exactly like the movie Slumdog Millionaire, where every question he had a you know a specific memory, unrelated memory from his life that got him to the answer. But it's a lot closer to Slumdog Millionaire than I think a lot of people gave it credit for, because like life happens mm-hmm. and you learn things from it, and then you know by some miracle, I ended up you know making money because someone wanted to ask me questions about it. You hear that, listeners? Listen to podcasts because they will help you later in life. <laughs> Tell all of your friends that you could win over $100,000. That was the single most podcast. profitable podcast episode of my life. <laughs> just our podcast, not every other podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> only, only this one because we are so incredibly informative. And like... We were really on the nose with the research too all the time. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, exactly. We always check everything that we say. Did we not have a tab malfunction today that cost us the information on a new story? Yeah, that was, yeah, that was me. That was me. Anyway, <laughs> well, Stephen, you were saying that there there were certain things that you uh, sort of remembered when your episodes came to air that you'd totally forgotten during the filming process because you know it's so so fast and quick and stressful. What was it like watching your episodes, like watching yourself and, you know, the responses of family and friends, that sort of thing? And especially, you know, already knowing at least the ultimate outcomes of each episode. Uh, Well, the first thing that I noticed, and I suppose I'm going to experience this again if I ever listen to this podcast, is my voice sounds way different on TV than it sounds in my head. (laughs) (laughs) It takes about 10 episodes to get used to it, and then you're you're fine. That's what we noticed anyway. And we just do a dumb podcast. We weren't on national television. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so that was the first thing that jumped out at me. But yeah, like you said, Tim, uh, there was like over the past seven weeks, I've been replaying the episodes in my head and I thought I remembered so much. I even took extensive notes on everything that I remembered 24 hours after I finished filming. And I had forgotten so much and I had jumbled so many things up even a day later looking back on it that it was almost like watching it, watching it for the first time. I knew, like you said, the ultimate outcome of it, but that's just like knowing you know, what the last scene of a movie is. There's still so much that's going to go on before that that's going to catch me by surprise. There were questions that watching on TV, I was yelling at myself for not buzzing in, and there were questions that I saw <laughs> myself buzzing in, and I was like, what are you doing, you moron? You don't know the answer to that. And then I got it right. So like, it was it was almost like an out-of-body experience where I was seeing myself, but I had no idea what I was going to do next. Yeah. The one that really killed me was the, was I think it was on your, no, it wasn't on your last episode. It was, I think, on your fifth. It was the Disenchantment, <laughs> or just Disenchanted, where you got like that one. So the, the answer was, uh, what is Disenchant-ed? Is that the name of the actual show? Yes. The, yes. The, the Netflix show is Disenchanted. The, the macaroning uh, fantasy show. Yeah. And uh, and he, he rang in and said, what is Disenchantment? And lost it just 
that that question just yeah. based on that. Yeah, I, I had uh, two wrong syllables in that round that cost me $2,000. But I guess that my brain really wants to see Amy Adams star in a Matt Groening animated comedy. Combining Enchanted <laughs> and Disenchant... Or in- I still can't get it right. <laughs> She's been on. She's been on The Simpsons. I mean, like recent Simpsons, but you know, she has been on yeah, The Simpsons. Yeah. We we don't talk about recent Simpsons. I still watch no. the show. Yeah, Leave exactly. me alone. <laughs> but yeah, there was just like even things like you know, I looking back on my notes, I had you know jumbled categories and questions out of order. I had forgotten some of the exchanges that I had with Alex. Like all this stuff that you would expect to be seared into your memory, like this incredible, amazing, one of a kind experience. And even 24 hours later, it was like it had just seeped out of my brain. So I was like, I was honestly just as nervous watching the first couple episodes as I had been when I was filming them because I knew what was going to happen, but I didn't really know what was going to happen. I still got to have plenty of fun of like watching people watch me who, who didn't know what was happening because the number one rule of appearing on Jeopardy is you cannot tell anybody anything. My wife, Kristen, flew out there to watch me film. So she and I were able to talk about it, but I couldn't tell my parents. I couldn't tell my family. I couldn't tell my friends because if you tell too many people and word gets out on how you did, they can actually withhold your winnings because it's a violation of your contract. So like my stock answer just kept being, you know, you get a thousand dollars for appearing on the show and I at least want that thousand dollars. <laughs> so I, I am not going to tell anybody anything about what went on. So, you know, they, they might've had an inkling that I, I won at least one game because, you know, like I was promoting it online and I wanted to, we all wanted to get together and have a watch party. And, you know, maybe if I had done terrible, I would have wanted to have a watch party just so folks could laugh at me. But the fact that I wanted, yeah. you know, that I like, you know, was really <laughs> excited to share it with people. You know, some people might have assumed that I won, but they really had no way to know. Like I said, that I may have just wanted people to console me there that day. <laughs> so, so my I was making assumptions <laughs> like that, Stephen, too. Like I was because you didn't have a watch party on your second night. I was like, oh, I bet he doesn't get past the second night and stuff like that. And then when you had people <laughs> over on your fifth night, I was like. Oh, I, I bet that he wins this night because he's having people over again kind of thing. And so, I mean, that's kind of the thing. Like I had, I didn't start telling people that I was on the show until two weeks before my episode aired. But so that gave me two weeks to kind of, you know, prepare a watch party and find a place and get folks to come. But if I had started scheduling a second night that far out, that's kind of giving away the game a little bit. Yeah. So by the time we got to like <laughs> yeah. my third and fourth and fifth episode, that was my parents driving that bus. Like they were like, no, we like, that was so much fun. We want to do it again. We're going back to the same bar. We're having people over to the house. I was like, all right, like y'all are, y'all are doing this yourself. You're not getting anything out of me. I'm not going to tell you yes, because that would give it away, but I'm not going to tell you no either because that yeah. might give it away. So like y'all just tell me where to watch and I will be there to watch it with you. <laughs> nice. What, anything else in terms of like sort of the watching experience, like the, the support you were getting from friends and family? I know like you, you went to UGA and we're on the swim team. And so UGA was like posting stuff about it and that kind of thing. And we were posting stuff all over the place about it too, apparently. Yeah. 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 Like, we were, we were posting on Facebook about it. We were, we didn't really know, like, we don't know you obviously, but like we, uh, Tim started posting it and I was like, I feel like I know that name. I think I met that. I think I met that guy. He's a name that sounds That's familiar. kind of this weird trickle down celebrity thing that I found kept happening to people who I knew. Like all of a sudden it wasn't just like people getting in touch with me and, you know, like family members and old friends, like wanting to reach out and say congrats and everything. But my family who lives in Louisiana and Mississippi, like people are stopping them on the street of the small town that my mother grew up in in, in Mississippi, wanting to talk to my uncle and my aunt about me. 
My uncle actually described it as, and these are his words, not mine, the most exciting thing to happen in town since Grant marched through. <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> so this, this is happening to like my parents, like people are stopping them at the grocery store or at, you know, Chick-fil-A while they're getting food. Folks are getting in touch with me. Folks want to talk about it with my cousin who lives in Canada or my cousin who lives in Texas or my aunt and uncle who live in live in Mississippi, live in this tiny little town in Mississippi. And it was almost like everybody who I was friends with and who I'm related to kind of got to share in this experience of something really special happening, which was honestly entirely unexpected, but was probably the coolest part of the entire experience. Like, I'm so glad that after having to keep it in for seven weeks that I didn't just get to share in watching it with people, but they got to share in, you know, feeling that excitement and feeling that rush that I had been feeling with me. I'm really, really glad that they got to feel that. And honestly, if I have any regrets about not going on longer on the show, it's not about, you know, winning or it's not about money. It's about that. I loved seeing them have so much fun with it. And I wish I could have done more to help them keep having fun. Nice. You're so pure, Steven. I I, I don't want to sound like I'm trying to put on or like I'm trying to be, you know, a great contestant or anything, but like, that's honestly how I felt about it. Like it's, it was just so much fun. Like I, I want people to experience that for themselves. I love that my family got to experience it for themselves. I hope that, you know, like maybe I've been like doing Q and A's on Reddit and online with people who want to get on the show. Like I would love if a little piece of advice that I give helps somebody get to feel what I felt because it's just so much fun. And I'll vouch for this. Steven is always this like upbeat and optimistic. This is not just like, hey, I was on Jeopardy. I have to like put on a a face for the media (laughs) kind of thing. (laughs) He makes a nice contrast for the three of us. True. I was was going to say, (laughs) you can never be on this podcast ever again. Uh, Well, and I will say uh, I wasn't able to watch your last episode because um, I was out of town for a conference, but I had Facebook friends start messaging me as your episode aired saying, hey, your Middle Earth Marathon is famous. That guy that you know is talking about it on TV. And I was like, what? And I was on the uh, West Coast. So I that like I had a couple of hours to figure out somewhere that I could go watch it so that I could see it. Air. Yeah, I, I got to take home a lot of great memories from that trip. But honestly, getting to shout out the uh, legendary Golden Dragon Trophy on national TV <laughs> was probably, you know, chief among them. Nice. <laughs> Just as Smaug is chief among calamities. calamities. I see what you did there, Stephen. Alicia will appreciate that if she actually listens to the podcast. (laughs) She does not. (laughs) Was there anything else that that we haven't covered, Stephen, that that you'd really like to tell our listeners about your experience? Uh, let, Let me think. I mean, it was like, you know, the people on the show are fantastic. I never thought that like I would get picked for the show, but especially not on my first go round. But the folks who do the auditions and the contestant coordinators, like they apparently saw something in me that I didn't even know was there. And they kind of gave me this opportunity to find it within myself, which has just kind of like it feels good for someone who you've never met and who like only had a few minutes interacting with you to kind of validate you and say like, no, there's something to this guy. We need to give him a shot. We don't need to put him on the back burner or come back to him a year from now or two years from now. We need to put him on the show as soon as we can. You know, they were, they're fantastic. They're great at making you feel comfortable in the green room in a really high pressure, high stress situation. Folks who did my makeup made me look better than I've ever looked before. Like I can hardly stand to look at myself in the mirror now because I know what I look like 
on TV. <laughs> the folks who were on the stage like made me feel like I belonged up there and like I was comfortable and like I could perform my best. And I said this on Twitter, but Alex Trebek like got me to be more personable than I've ever been with anybody, except for maybe my wife on our first date. You know, like I was up there joking around with him, like, you know, having just this kind of funny repartee with him, stuff that I didn't even remember saying after the fact that kind of knocked me out of my chair watching it on TV because I couldn't believe that I was being that witty and that engaging because it usually doesn't come so naturally to me. Now we got to get your wife on the show to confirm or deny this. (laughs) She'll agree with it. Like I, I had my A game when I met her. I had my A game when I was talking to Alex. And that's about the only times I've ever had my A game. Nice. All right. Good. (laughs) Nice. And we have to thank the Jeopardy people too for telling Stephen that he was, you know, that he could come on our podcast and talk about his experience. So thanks, Jeopardy. Oh, yeah. They've been like just enormously, you know, I had tons of questions in the lead up to the show. They were always ready to ask, you know, now that the show's over. They've been great about, you know, allowing me to, to chat with folks about my experience. I mean, they are just they're the best at what they do. Like they work for the game show of all game shows and you, you can see why they're the ones who have those jobs. Like they are, they're just fantastic, fantastic at what they do and fantastic, fantastic, you know, people in general. And I'm, I'm just not that you're biased uh, at all. No, considering. Uh, <laughs> I, I would like to think that I would feel the same way about them, even if they weren't about to cut me a check for dollars <laughs> Um, I, I can neither confirm nor deny it, but I would certainly hope that I would feel the same way about them. And also like (laughs) one thing I also want to say is you hear horror stories about how people kind of get torn down online after they get thrust into the public eye. My experience with folks on Twitter, on Reddit, on Facebook, like everywhere has been universally 100% the most positive thing ever. I never would ex- would have expected that kind of feedback. Like I knew that I didn't think that I was a controversial contestant. I thought if anything, people would think that I was boring. But the the folks in, at the show like did a great job of making me look good. Uh, like I said, Alex brought out the absolute best in me. And the folks online who watched the show and have gotten in touch have just had nothing but the kindest, sweetest, most wonderful things to say. And like, it's made this incredible experience even better. So if any of them are listening, I would just like to say thank you and let you know that I truly, truly appreciate all of your support. We can guarantee that they're not, but like, (laughs) yeah. Well, speaking, speaking of that though, where can our listeners find you if they want to follow your further Jeopardy adventures? Because spoiler alert, like he's seated what eighth or something like that right now to participate in the tournament of champions. Cause there hasn't been a lot of five-time champions over the last year or two. So yeah. Where can they follow you on, on any social media? Yeah. That four game curse, you know, really put me in, in a good position to come back for a tournament uh, whenever they do it next. You know, there's no guarantees that I'll be asked back, but I'm going to start preparing like I'm going to. And hopefully, you know, I get another call from Culver City telling me that it's time to fly back out to L.A. But if anybody wants to uh, follow me on Twitter, that's probably the best place to find me. Uh, My handle there is at ask underscore Steven. That's S-T-E-V-E-N. When I picked that handle about seven years ago, I didn't know how uh, prophetic it would (laughs) come in to be. But, you know, uh, sometimes things just work out that way. Yeah, nice. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so go follow Steven. So you follow his further adventures. And uh, we do hope that if you do end up on the Tournament of Champions, you can come back and uh, talk to us after about that as well. Tell us how that experience was different. Yeah, that would be great. All right. Did you guys have any other questions for Steven before we move on to Geek Cred and close this bad boy out? Nope. We, I was, I was, smell good. what did Alex smell like? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, uh, Alex is exactly, yeah. Alex is exactly what you want Alex to be. Like, he's, he's smart, he's witty. 
He's generous. He's intelligent. Again, just like any Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> so just like the rest of all the other Canadians. Good. All right. Like there, I understand now. There's a, there's a reason that even people who don't watch Jeopardy or or who haven't seen the Celebrity Jeopardy sketches on SNL know who Alex Trebek is. Like he is just that kind of you know legendary iconic presence. You know, you don't become an entertainment and cultural legend unless you kind of have that that about you. And he he absolutely does. I assume this goes without saying, but like you didn't get up there and weren't super tempted to start going into like the Sean Connery bit. <laughs> Did they tell you specifically not to do that? Like, don't do the Connery bit. He hates that. Like, he fucking hates it. Don't do the Connery bit. Don't don't write your name down as Turd Ferguson. <laughs> I didn't manage to get in the Connery bit, but I did have a kind of oblique shout out to the uh, who are three people who had never been in my kitchen bit from Cheers. Uh, nice. so, so at least I got to uh, to get that out there. Nice. I used to have a joke, in, I guess in university, like I used to ask people like who, which celebrity would you punch in the face if you ever had the chance? And I always used to jokingly say Alex Trebek because it was such an unassuming <laughs> answer and everyone just really loves him. And I, I love Alex Trebek. It was just a, totally a joke, but now I can't use that anymore because it's super inappropriate. <laughs> yeah. You can't do that. Someone with cancer. <laughs> I never actually wanted to Alex. I just thought it was funny. It's, like, it's like the fight club <laughs> answer. Like you want to fight Shatner, right? Like why? Not because Shatner can fight, but because he looked like an idiot doing it and he fought a fucking blizzard guys yeah <laughs> you want to fight shatter gorn yeah nice yeah <laughs> well with that let's move on to our final segment of the episode uh which is geek cred which is where each of us goes around and just recommends something nerdy something geeky that we have been digging on lately for our listeners to go check out if they so choose steven did you want to throw your geek cred behind something yeah sure thing so i've been going through a, a serious uh, fantasy book phase lately i needed you know a little bit of escapism to kind of take myself away from all the craziness revolving around Jeopardy in my life. So I figured that uh, fantasy novels were a great place to do that. And I've really been going through the works of Canadian author actually named uh, Guy Gavriel Kay. He is a, uh, he actually helped uh, Christopher Tolkien uh, co-edit the Silmarillion back in the 70s. Oh, cool. And then uh, went yeah. out on a uh, fantasy writing career of his own. Uh, his first few novels were a very uh, high fantasy Tolkien influenced, but he's kind of carved out his own niche over the past, you know, 25 years or so writing uh, what he refers to as historical fantasy. He takes uh, real-life events from history, like uh, the fall of Constantinople or uh, interactions between uh, the Republic of Venice and various pirates uh, in the Mediterranean Sea and crafts uh, fantasy worlds uh, with a little bit of magic involved around those real events and real people. So it's not historical fiction because he's not telling real people's stories, but he's using real people's stories as a jumping-off point to uh, tell, you know, something a little bit more fantastical that doesn't necessarily need to follow actual history. The most recent one of his I've, I read was called uh, Children of Earth and Sky, which was an excellent read, some very moving parts, and he's just an incredible, in at the act of crafting a sentence. Tolkien is number one in my book on that, but uh, Kay is right up there with him. Just He writes these phrases and passages that makes me want to keep rereading them and turning them over in my head to really appreciate the way that the words flow from one into the other and the way that paragraphs build upon paragraphs. He's got a new book coming out in May. I've already got it pre-ordered, but anybody who wants to dive into his back catalog, he's got a whole series of these historical fantasy novels, several of which work in the same fantasy world. There aren't necessarily recurring characters, but there are recurring locations, recurring religions, recurring themes, 
And they all kind of build off of one another without having to needed to read one to understand the plot of another. So yeah, Guy Gabriel K, uh, he has been uh, really doing it for me these days. Cool. I actually read the Fionnivar Tapestry mm-hmm. a few years ago. Really, really good trilogy of books. Like those, So those were actually the, his first three novels that he wrote uh, on his own. I've read them. I, I like them a lot, but he has grown by leaps and bounds as a writer in the years since then. So uh, if you if you dug those, by all means, like keep looking into his catalog because there's there's some great, great stuff awesome. in there. Mark, how about you? What's your geek cred this week? Uh, I have two things this week, but they're both records, so it's not that big a deal. Jenny Lewis and uh, Andrew Burr both put out records, or at least I've got my hands on them this week. So the Jenny Lewis one's called On the Line. I will have to listen to it a little bit more to really get into it. It's pretty good, though. Red Bull and Hennessy is the single off that, right? I think so, yeah. So Jenny Lewis is the singer. I've from heard Ryan that. Kiley. It's good. Yeah. The first yeah. single's really good. The album's pretty good. I got to like live with it a little bit more. The problem is that I've been living with this other album, Andrew Bird's new album, My Finest Work Yet, which it actually fucking may be because it is <laughs> ridiculously good album. I've been spinning it like nonstop all week. I've been trying to get Paul to spin it so I can get some thoughts. Because I always like to get my Andrew Bird filtered through my brother eventually, but uh, it's a fucking good record. So phrasing? Oh mm-hmm. no, no, I'm I'm comfortable with that. The way <laughs> gross. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, no, the new Andrew Bird. It's on yeah. Spotify now. It's called My Finest Work Yet. It's fucking like mint, ten out of ten. So get in there and spin that. Nice. Spin it like it's actually like a fucking record. Come on, guys. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Paul, how about you? What's your geek cred for this week? Mine is also an album because this week the new Way's Blood album came out. It's titled Titanic Rising. And Way's Blood has been around for a while. She's a singer-songwriter who specializes mostly in like 70s singer-songwriter, like Carpenters-esque style, but in a very cinematic way. Uh she's got a lot of her her last album was very much like album staring down the apocalypse with like a Karen Carpenter vibe going on. And this one is similar but better uh, and i really like that last album so she released a single called movies and you can check out the video on youtube it's beautiful and the whole album is absolutely stunning she has one of the most amazing clear beautiful voices i've ever heard and her the songwriting on this album is insane so check out titanic rising by ways blood because it's super super good nice. My geek cred this week is a place. I was in Vegas for a conference this past week, and I have a couple friends that have lived out there for a couple years. And uh, listeners will know that I'm a bit of a cocktail nerd. With a one of my loves in particular in that world is tiki bars and tiki drinks. And so I went to this tiki bar that's just off the strip, you know, maybe half a mile off the strip or something like that, called uh, the Golden Tiki. That is really cool. One of the best tiki bars I've ever been to. Super well themed. They serve Dole Whip, including like cocktails that have Dole Whip like incorporated into them. And you can get like Dole Whip just like with dark rum poured over it and really well themed. And yeah, so uh, and they were I, I don't think this is every night, but they had like a guy spinning like like classic like ska and new wave and like early punk and stuff like that music, which kind of weirdly fit in with it because it's kind of there's a little bit of overlap to those cultural niches i think so yeah Yeah. the golden tiki in las vegas i highly recommend to our listeners if you're ever out there and are looking to get off the strip and get something a little little different oh one correction i have to make it's actually pronounced wise blood but i didn't look it up before (laughs) i recommended her so i should have done that but it's spelled w-e-y-e-s so my mistake is understandable but either way so, so listeners definitely do not use our podcast Jeopardy? to study yeah, no. for 
Terrible Japanese. idea. Or Terrible other trivia idea. shows. Terrible yeah. idea. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we'll close out. We'll say thank you again, Stephen, for being on. It's been great. And thank you for telling us your Jeopardy story. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been awesome. Yeah. Uh, it was so much fun to watch you uh, watch you on the show. So, And we will say good night. Um, if you uh, would like to... Give us your feedback on the episode. If you have a Jeopardy story or anything like that, or uh, want to talk about any of the news or anything we covered, then you can do so on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash dance robot dance podcast. You can hit us up at our Twitter, which is probably nowhere near as exciting as Steven's Twitter, which is at DRD underscore podcast. You can send us an email at dance robot dance podcast at gmail.com. And if you are not already, you can subscribe to our podcast using any uh, podcatching app. Uh, we're on the Google Podcast Store, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. So with that, we will say goodnight. Say goodnight, Mark. Good night. Say goodnight, Paul. Good night. And say goodnight, Stephen. Good night, folks. All right. And I'm Tim, and we will catch you next time. Uh, maybe we should give him a shout out his Twitter one more time. What's your Twitter again? At Yeah, give us your Twitter one. Uh, it is at ask underscore Stephen. A-S-K underscore S-T-E-V-E-N. All right. I will follow you when the episode is done. Yeah, nice. Thank you <laughs> and you'll, very much. you'll probably get one from our face from our uh, our Twitter page as well. So <laughs> yes, you will. Once I log in. For my Twitter feed. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> so all right. All right. Thank ha- you so much. Bye, everybody. I was going to say, well, now we're going to get sued, Tim. Why Why would you do that if you just got sued? <laughs> it's okay. I think, I think you talked over enough of it that all right, all right. Uh, <laughs> that we, we can avoid the... Uh, yeah. that, that, that counts as fair use. Fair use. Yeah. Fair, fair use. Fair use. <laughs> so it's not like we're making any money off this, guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Nope. If, you, nope. if you shout fair use enough. Yeah. <laughs> I actually learned while I was out in L.A., thanks to my adventure singing Alexander Hamilton on the show, (laughs) that if you do a certain number of notes or fewer, you don't have to clear a copyright for a song. So maybe you can get away with like the first two doo-doos and we'll be okay. All right. (laughs) We'll definitely make sure that we we check that out. Yeah. (laughs) Bye, guys. Bye.